This is the collection of atoms known as Jason Gotts, and you might be wondering what this show is all about. Think The Muppet Show with less comedy and no Muppets, but still the element of surprise. Each episode starts with a single word. I made this season in the middle of a pandemic, and like a lot of us in confinement, I felt hungry for connection with other people and with wild, open nature. So I asked nine friends for a single word each about the natural world. I thought about the word in an audio diary. I shared each word with a musician and asked them to write a song or two. I used each word to write a short story. And I talked to nine scientists, poets, songwriters, healers, and teachers about the word, about the natural world, and lots more. This is Clever Creature Season 2, dedicated always to my brave sister, Mary. The word of the day comes from Weyusi Baraka, and that word is transition. So the word of this episode, transition, which comes from my friend Weyusi Baraka, is one of those that are particularly, can be particularly challenging to work with in writing a story, writing a song, trying to reflect on it as I'm doing now, because it is just so big, so vast, so abstract, and so permeating everything. In one sense, everything is in transition. There is nothing that you can find in the world that either at the visible level or the subatomic level is not in transition. Even things that look incredibly solid like mountains are moving and changing to some extent. But as I reflected on this word in recent weeks and yeah, weeks it's been, I was thinking about how in creative work, there is always this tension, right? Between like, what is transition? The idea of transition is moving from one state to another state. And that presupposes that a state is a thing, that there is this like solid thing that we can call a state. And really that's talking in relative terms because relatively speaking, yes, we point to something and we say, okay, that's a state. That collection of atoms right there, that, that's Jason Gotts. Um, that siren that you may hear on this recording that represents an ambulance that is actually going somewhere in Astoria, Queens. Um, and all of that is true. And on another level, all of those things are just kind of um, agglomerations of causal factors that are just holding together in some way at, at, at a given moment. And there is something very unreal about those very solid seeming forms. But anyway, to take it to creative work, I was thinking that the solid forms are the product. You end up with a podcast, you end up with a story, you end up with a song, a painting. And the transition is everything that it takes to get there, the process. And artists, you know, greater artists than me, uh, more philosophical artists than, than me have talked at great length about this. But here are my thoughts. 
There are a lot of artists who say that you know it's all about the process. It's it's all about the process. You have to you you have to let go of the product. The product is useful in a way in like organizing my for me anyway for organizing my time. Like knowing that I'm writing a book, for example, and that the book is going to be roughly X number of words. I find that helpful. You know, day to day, it helps me to say, okay, like I really, I, I'm going to sit down for four hours today, and I'm going to write, or or saying I'm going to make this podcast, and it's you know, season two is going to have nine episodes, and each episode is going to have the following components. That's useful. It's useful in terms of like organizing your thinking and your energies and focusing focusing the mind and the heart. At the same time, it can become a distraction because as soon as you've got a goal and a product in mind, the chatter can start in your head like, oh, you know, yeah, tomorrow I've really got to work on that story. Oh, you know, the story writing didn't go that great today. And tomorrow I've got X, Y, and Z to do at my kid's school. And what if I'm not going to be able to get to that? And, you know, then maybe the story won't be done in time, you know, and all, all of that kind of dwelling in the future and sort of being pulled out of yourself. And I think that to the extent that any art is valuable and maybe any human product is valuable, I don't know, but I can, I can speak to art. To the extent that it's valuable, that's, that depends on the extent to which the artist is in it while they're in it, while they're making it. The extent to which the product is a record of a process that was done, you know, wholeheartedly with intensity, with intention, with joy and presence. And so that becomes a kind of a weird balancing act, like a trick to con you have to constantly convince yourself to let go of the forces that are pulling you toward the future, the irritable little reminders of what's coming next and sink into the thing that you're trying to do. I was thinking about Jackson Pollock, the painter, and how he essentially invented a form of abstract painting, which was clearly nothing more than the result of a process, the record of a process. He danced with the canvas, letting the brushes drip, letting the paint drip onto it. And then, you know, the result is often this massive, rich, complicated and alive, colorful explosion or scribble. And some people might look at that and say, I don't get it. You know, I don't know what I'm looking at. It's all the same. But if you actually take some time and sink into it, really sit with it and let it work its unique magic on you, you do start to sink into the process. It's like listening to improv jazz music. You start to feel the rhythms and the shapes. You feel the, the energy of the transition that you're looking at. And in a broader sense, of course, this tension is the tension of our lives. To what extent are we going to spend our lives running from thing to thing, checking off boxes on our to-do list, and then end up in our graves realizing that we never once were where we were? 
And to what extent are we going to allow ourselves to be moved by the presence of others, sink into the moments of our lives? It's never going to be perfect. We're always in tension that way. But I think that that's kind of the grand work of living is to the extent that it's possible to try to live inside the transition rather than at these fictional endpoints of it. The instrumentals for the song coming up were done by my friend Adi Sadak in Istanbul, Turkey. He also did the mixing and mastering. And Nota Bene, it's a rocker. It's pretty loud, so turn it up or turn it down as your taste may be. This story is called Transition, or Nova Blues. 
On a good day, the commute from PG County to Potomac took an hour and 45 minutes, what with the beltway traffic and the sluggishness of her 15-year-old blue Chevy Nova. For 13 years, she did it every day, leaving home at 5.30 to get there before the Tarnoffs left for work and school, just in case there were any complicated last-minute instructions. There were always complicated last-minute instructions. Please make absolutely sure to remove the collar stays before ironing Mr. Tarnoff's work shirts. Please be careful to thoroughly dust the ledge behind the taller of the two potted plants in the office. With a cherry big gulp in the refillable cup, a fresh pack of Salem's, and WKYS, at least until Silver Spring, where the station cut out and there was nothing on the radio worth listening to, the drive was actually pretty peaceful, a little oasis in the day. Sometimes she'd skip the radio altogether and just pray out loud. Please, God, let Joe find his way in this world. Let him get off his sorry ass and off the liquor and start acting like a grown man for once. No. No. Lord have mercy. Just let him know that he has it in him to do right. Nothing wrong with Joe a steady job wouldn't fix. He's sweet in his heart. Some men just stay boys, no matter how old they get. Some men just feel their pain too deep. The Tarnoff boy was an only child. Spoiled as they came, but she loved him, especially in the beginning, when he was little. Every afternoon after school, he'd come rushing to the Nova and jump in the front passenger seat, hugging and wiggling all over her until she made him let go. Get your button back and put your seatbelt on. You're getting on my last nerve. For as long as the boy could remember, she'd been there. A big, soft, smothery, mothering presence smelling like a five-foot, 250-pound woman who'd spent six hours cleaning house and then slathered on some rose-scented body lotion. To him, it smelled like home. She spent more time with him, after all, than his own parents, who regularly worked until nine or ten at night, and were too stressed out most of the rest of the time for much hugging or smothering. She let him sit by her while she watched her stories and folded the laundry. General Hospital with Luke and Laura and the wedding of the century. He just looked at the pictures, understanding nothing. The bouncing golden curls of Luke and the beatific upturned face of Laura. Did you know that praying mantis ladies eat the man's head? She did not. The boy's head was so full of crazy ideas and facts that if a praying mantis lady ate it, she'd probably explode. Talking to Mrs. Tarnoff, she called him the professor. The professor told me all about butterflies today. He knows exactly how far they fly from Canada to Brazil, I think. That boy's going to be famous. At home, talking to Joe, she said, He ain't got a lick of sense, just like you. Can't find his own damn shoes, but he'll tell you all about Jupiter. As the boy got older, this only got more true. The way she grew up, first in North Carolina, then in Southern Maryland, you had three choices. Work yourself into an early grave, Drink yourself into an earlier one, or, the earliest grave of all, do something stupid and die on the street or in prison. Around 13 years old, listening for the thousandth time to her mama going on about too many mouths to feed, she decided she wasn't going to be anybody's burden ever again. Since then, she'd been working at whatever she could get, starting with weed picking on her daddy's farm. The job with the Tarnoffs was the best she'd ever had, the one she meant to keep until her legs wouldn't work anymore, which, with the diabetes, could be any time now. Most of the time she had the whole house to herself, taking a break now and then on the fine leather sofa, cooling off in that whisper-quiet central AC. The fridge was full of expensive treats from the gourmet grocery on Seven Locks Road, and, in a generous mood, Mrs. Tarnoff had told her more than once to help herself. Sometimes she did, 
Mostly, she didn't. Be careful, her mama used to tell her. Kindness ain't always kindness. Charity comes with strings attached. In this boy's world, money didn't exist. Fancy food and toys and rare cats and vacations to Jamaica rained down like the gentle rain from heaven. At ten years old, he asked her if she wanted to go skiing with the family in Colorado during winter vacation. Honey, these legs ain't getting on no skis. I ain't never been on no airplane either, and I don't get vacations. The boy was astonished. For half an hour, she tried to patiently answer his frantic questions. Some people are rich, baby. Some people are poor. Poor people don't ski. The next morning, Mrs. Tarnoff was furious. Did you tell my son that we're rich and you're poor? She tried to explain that the boy was growing older, that he was curious about the differences in their lives. How could he not be? He is ten years old, Mrs. Tarnoff snapped. He is a sensitive little boy. Last night, he cried himself to sleep, begging me to give you some of our money so you could go skiing. She apologized and promised it wouldn't happen again. That night at home, Joe got an earful. How's that boy supposed to find out about the world? It ain't my job to lie to him. What am I supposed to tell him every time he asks me why he can't have a sleepover at my house? Tell him you ain't got a house, said Joe, half listening, taking another sip of Boone's farm. Then things escalated quickly, and then Joe was the one without a house, at least for the moment. His drinking buddy Dean's shed would have to do until she cooled off a bit. Come on, she said, one afternoon when the boy's homework was done. I got something to show you. She took his hand and led him to the hill that sloped gently up from the side of the house, just past the line of the mulch and the landscaping, into the still wild woods. The boy skipped alongside her as she scaled the hill with wide, sturdy, deliberate steps, like the tarantula in his school's science room, which also contained a chameleon and a boa constrictor that ate live mice, a gruesome ceremony the children were marched in once a week to watch. Where are we going, he asked, and then asked again but she didn't answer. Isn't this the neighbor's property? They crossed the invisible line into woodland belonging to the forbidding brick house whose owners he'd never met, then into the backyard of some kids he used to play with. The feeling of taboo ran deep. In the suburbs, property was sacred. You didn't set foot on someone's land without permission or some explainable purpose, like selling gypsy moth traps for the Cub Scouts. But she was a grown-up. She was in charge, and it didn't seem to bother her at all. At the top of the hill, they passed another house, huge, white, its paint flaking off and the wood siding underneath turning green and fuzzy. Beside it, there was a high fence and a gate with a padlock. She had the key, and she opened it. Together, they walked into a magnificent garden like nothing the boy had ever seen. Wooden stakes and string fenced off separate plots. Along the sides of the fence, vines covered latticework, walls of warm, green tendrils that towered above them protectively. People rent these, she explained. My daddy was a farmer. Where I came from, it was nothing but wide open spaces and good black soil for growing. Up here, people never saw a vegetable didn't come from a supermarket. She showed him her tomatoes, fleshier and deeper red than any he'd ever seen. She showed him a squash, half as long as he was tall and as wide as his thigh. He split into two one half of him in awe and rapture at these marvels, and the other half tormented by the gnats that abandoned the vegetables to swarm around his face in a cluster. They dive-bombed at random, and he swatted at them violently. Oh, don't worry about some gnats. They don't do nothing. Here, take these. She handed him a Ziploc bag full of tiny black dots. Dead gnats, he wondered. Cornflower, she said. Seeds from my cousin's garden. 
When I was a kid, people called them weeds. My daddy made me pick them from his fields, but I always loved them. Ain't no other blue like that on earth. She squatted down and showed him how to dig a little trench with the spade, told him how to space them apart, cover them, and water them just enough with a hose that was lying there, from which a little trickle ran continuously. He thought of the seeds, each one in its bed like an oyster, lying there all snug and waiting. Then he looked at the dirt under his fingernails and thought, Mom's gonna kill me. As if reading his mind, she said, Come on, we gotta get you into a bath before your parents get home. That was the first and the last time the boy ever planted anything. When he was 13, in the early 80s, there was a sitcom on TV about a white family of liberals with a conservative son. The parents were laid-back, aging hippies who had protested the Vietnam War. The son refused the bajas and tie-dyes his mom always tried to make him wear, opting instead for a suit and a tie. They talked about social justice. He talked about entrepreneurship and investing. The mother went crazy arguing with her son. The father just shrugged his shoulders with a wry yet loving smile like, Hey, what you gonna do with this kid? The turnoff boy loved this show. He loved the confidence of the conservative son and he wanted to be just like him. His own parents, Reagan Republicans and business owners themselves, found this phase cute and indulged it, answering his questions about investing and buying him collared shirts and ties and a sport coat which he insisted on wearing to school every day. Being 13, he no longer ran to the Chevy Nova after school. He was going now to an expensive private high school in Washington, D.C., and had asked his mom if he could ride the metro to a different station closer to Potomac and be picked up from there. He told her it was because he was growing up and wanted the adventure, but in reality he was embarrassed by the old beat-up car, which belched thick white smoke and was starting to rust out at the chassis. The Marriott kid, a couple grades lower, got picked up every day in a Lamborghini. The boy was embarrassed by the cigarettes, the Big Gulp, the Pine Tree air freshener, and the Lionel Richie and Luther Vandross music spilling out of the windows you had to crank down painstakingly by hand. And he was embarrassed by his old housekeeper, as they called that role in those days, although he couldn't have explained exactly why. So every day after school, he and a friend rode the metro to a suburban station where there was a mini-mall. The friend's house was on the way to the Tarnoffs, so he usually hitched a ride in the Nova. Waiting for her to pick them up, they browsed and sometimes bought Godiva chocolates or studied the new sweaters from Colors by Alexander Julian. All those colorful silk threads, that expensively meticulous design. More than once lately, he'd totally lost track of time and left her there waiting for him, the Blue Nova idling, once for over an hour. There were no cell phones back then, no way to get in touch. She'd tried complaining to Mrs. Tarnoff, but Mrs. Tarnoff just shrugged with a wry yet loving smile and said, Preteens, huh? Can't live with them? Can't toss them out the window. So one time, she showed up an hour late herself, just to teach the boy a lesson. Terrified and crying, he finally called his mom at the office. Furious, Mrs. Tarnoff canceled her evening meetings and raced to the mini-mall. She got there just as the Nova was pulling in, and a scene ensued in the semicircular drop-off driveway, with both boys standing there staring, backpacks at their feet, trying to melt their Godiva caramels in their mouths without chewing. You ain't here. You don't see how he acts every day. I don't care how he acts. You are the adult. You do not abandon a 13-year-old child. Mrs. Tarnoff, that boy makes me wait on purpose. I changed his diapers when he was a baby, and he treats me like his servant. Worse than that. Oh, give me a break. You're just lucky nobody called the police. That's all I can say. I had to cancel three meetings, and you're just lucky nobody called the police. Come on, boys. We're going home. 
A little too forcefully, Mrs. Tarnoff grabbed her son's wrist and yanked him toward her white Mercedes, the friend trailing sheepishly behind. By then, Joe had gotten his act together. He had quit drinking and was working as a janitor at the local high school, going to church regularly. He had even become a better listener. That night, he listened to his wife as she wept. It's okay, baby, he said. You do what you gotta do. Those people got no right to treat you like that. I'm earning now. We can hold until you find something different. But between the big gulps and a few other sweet comforts she couldn't give up, her diabetes wasn't getting any better. And after 10 years with the Tarnoffs, they had put her on their company's health insurance. It was good insurance. No way she was going back on the Medicaid. That summer, the boy wanted a Fisher boombox with a dual cassette deck for copying tapes. It cost $75 at Radio Shack. Fine, his dad said. If you weed the back hill for a month, I'll get it for you. The back hill of the house was landscaped with ivy, azalea, and rhododendron. In between, up through the cedar mulch, grew thistly weeds with thorns a centimeter long. Maryland in August was humid and buggy. The gnats were relentless. Sweat poured down the boy's face, and the thorns went right through his gloves. He came into the house every five minutes for breaks, trailing dirt all over the kitchen floor she'd just mopped. You better get back out there and do your job, she told him. Don't make me tell your mama you quit on it. You want that radio, don't you? But it's not fair, he complained. I'm out there working like a slave. My friends get radios for nothing. Chris Kemper got a jet ski. Mm -mm Mm-mm-mm, she said, shaking her head. Mm -mm Mm-mm-mm, and turned on the vacuum cleaner. Have you heard about these welfare queens? The boy asked her from the back seat one afternoon that fall. They just take money from the government and go on cruises. The radio was turned up, so she wasn't sure she'd heard correctly. Excuse me? She said. Yeah, people in the inner city, too lazy to work, sitting around getting rich off of taxpayers' money. She pulled over to the side of the road. Get out. You walking home. What? He said. You can't do that. Boy, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. You just spit out whatever you hear on that news program your parents watching. What do you know about welfare? This is my car, and I've had enough of your nonsense. Get out and walk. In reality, the boy was less than half a mile from home, but there was no sidewalk, just a grassy fringe next to a ditch, and nobody ever walked there except those housekeepers who didn't even have a Nova, the ones who came to the suburbs every day by bus. He trudged along, brooding and furious, baffled and vindictive. Just wait till my mom gets home, he muttered to himself. You just wait till she gets home. But good help is hard to find, and after all, she'd been with them for over a decade. She was practically family. And who was going to hire an aging diabetic who could barely manage the stairs? After a tearful, impassioned scene with the boy listening at the closed door of the downstairs guest room, Mrs. Tarnoff decided that this would all eventually blow over. This was teenage stuff. She sat her son down for a talk about trying to be more sensitive to the cultural differences. But that spring, the housework lapsed. Explicit, detailed instructions from Mrs. Tarnoff were repeatedly ignored. There were more late pickups, too. Never a full hour, but 15 minutes here, 20 there. Compassion was one thing, but there comes a point. At sleepaway camp, buried in one of the 10-page letters his mom sent every other day, full of minutia about what his cousins were doing or the remodeling of the bathroom, two lines caught the Tarnoff boy's attention. Unfortunately, we had to let Evie go. The housework was just getting too much for her. She died sometime in his freshman year of college of heart disease. 
She was only 56, his mom said on the phone, having called just to tell him. All those cigarettes, and the weight, of course. But her daughter Erica is doing great. She's an RN. The boy was only half listening, though, a little stoned and eager to get back to his girlfriend and the movie they'd been watching. There was no question of his going to the funeral. He thought of her briefly, though, for years afterward, any time he saw a cornflower. Before I introduce the guest, just a quick note to say that all of these conversations were recorded in the fall and winter of 2020, either just before or just after the U.S. presidential election and several months into the pandemic, in case any of those themes come up. I was around 20 years old the first time I read a Buddhist text. I didn't like it. It seemed to be telling me that everything I loved was bad and I should stop loving it. I loved good food, friendship, music, hiking, beer, reading, my girlfriend, normal 20-year-old stuff. But according to this ancient book and translation, all these attachments would inevitably lead me to suffering. In my 30s and 40s, after my son was born and after my younger sister died, I tried again, this time reading and listening to modern Buddhist teachers of the West, Pema Chodron, Chogyam Trungpa, Suzuki Roshi, Joseph Goldstein, Ajahn Amaro, and more. I was open in a different way, and they were speaking to Westerners like me in voices we could understand. I followed them back to older scripture and figured out that non-attachment isn't the same as indifference, that suffering is a terrible translation for the universal sickness the Buddha diagnosed. I saw a better, truer way of living than the consumerism and scientific materialism I was raised with. Since then, I've continued with Buddhist studies and practice, but the challenges of building a creative career and living with my family in 21st century New York City, as well as my rebellious and hypercritical mind, often threaten to undermine all my good intentions. I'm not running off to a monastery anytime soon, but in those moments of confusion, I understand, even long for, the clarity and simplicity of a Buddhist monk's life. My guest today is Ajahn Amaro, a great teacher in the Thai forest tradition of Theravadan Buddhism. Born in the UK, he has lived as a monk for 42 years. I've listened to hundreds of his Dharma talks and read several of his books. And among the Buddhist voices I've turned to for guidance, his is one of the wisest, warmest, most intelligent I've heard. I'm so glad to have you on Clever Creature. Thank you so much for being here, Ajahn Amaro. Yeah, my pleasure to be available. I think it might be useful since the audience probably comes from a wide background in terms of, you know, their awareness of Buddhism to have just a brief overview of the the forest tradition that's your lineage and where where that where that sits within Buddhism. A very, I mean, you know, very very brief overview if you don't mind. Uh, the forest tradition, uh, as it's found in Thailand, uh, which is where I encountered it and what I've become a part of. Um, it aims to hark back to the style of life from the Buddha's own era. So uh, monastics living a very, very simple life uh, in the forest, uh, each nun or monk living in a, an individual hut in the woods and uh, dedicating the life towards meditation and, and spiritual development. 
obviously over the years, since it's 2,500 years since the Buddha's time, uh, that uh, ability to live in that way has waxed and waned in different countries. So that uh, in, say, in the Buddhist world, you say Sri Lanka or Myanmar or Thailand or other countries of Southeast Asia or in China and Tibet. Japan, Korea, and Mongolia, you know, all the different Buddhist countries, there have been various groups that have endeavored to live in those ways of, of great simplicity, uh, keeping the monastic rule very strictly, and spending a, a large amount of time, majority of time, in meditation. So the forest tradition, as it's found in Thailand, is one of those groups that's tried to hark back to the original way of life uh, and simplicity of the Buddha's style of living himself. And in the current age, it was really um, catalyzed by the life of one particular monk, Ajahn Mun, who was from northeast Thailand and grew up in a small uh, village in a, a subsistence farming family. So through his own initiative, he, through studying the scriptures and then finding a few monks in his area who did practice meditation and who aspired to that style of life, he really took it to heart and was a very, say, imaginative, proactive kind of a person. So he had the feeling of, well, if we're going to do this, we should do it properly. And if I'm going to make the best of this, this monastic life that I can, I need to really give my whole heart, my whole being to it. He was also quite a skilled teacher. So during his life as a forest monk and his own practice of meditation, he developed a great deal of spiritual skill and accomplishment and a great ability to explain the teachings and the practice of meditation and Buddhist ways of working with the mind in the Buddhist languaging of things to a large number of people. So it's not an exaggeration to say that the majority of those who are accomplished and well-respected meditation teachers in Thailand today are either his spiritual children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren. And so um, my own teacher, Ajahn Chah, was uh, one who was lucky enough to spend a short time with Ajahn Man in the 1950s. Right. And so Ajahn Man's embodying of the forest monastic life was picked up by Ajahn Chah, and that's what we've tried to carry to the West. It reminds me a little bit of what I've studied of the history of Hasidic Judaism in the sense that it is both a, uh, it was like a conservative liberalizing movement in a sense. Uh, and you tell me to what extent I'm, I'm off base here if I am, but that there was a corrupt priesthood, as it were, it was a reaction, you know, the forest tradition was a reaction against what it saw as corruption in Buddhist tradition, trying to go back to something more pure. And so in a sense, opening up the heart of Buddhism again, which to me feels like a liberalization or a bringing of light in a sense, but by going back to first principles. Exactly. Yeah. So I think you, you put it very well. It's both a conservative and also a, a sort of rejuvenating, uh, sort of liberalizing spirit to it because it was, yeah, and this is not just those particular members of the monastic community or the religious organization and the uh, those who were the sort of official uh, sort of role holders of the religious form in, in Thailand or other Buddhist countries, particularly singled out as being corrupt, but rather that's a natural cycle that occurs within most religions. That right. things become institutionalized, right. they get very wealthy, they own a lot of power, they have political clout, and then they, they lose their spiritual values through being well supported and, and having automatic praise from the society and an inherited uh, sense of value is imparted to them. And then someone says, hang on a minute, we've lost sight of where this came from. Like Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. Yeah, he was just trying to be a good rabbi, as far as I can see. <laughs> right, he he right. wasn't trying to start a new religion, but he was like uh, in exactly the same spirit, trying to get back to the original principles of 
the potential of the human heart, the human mind, to be liberated and seeing that the institution of the religion had become burdensome and so it needed to be right. refreshed and revitalized. And so the forest tradition of the current era was very much in that spirit of both looking back to the original spirit of the Buddha's teaching and the Buddha's way of life, but also being ready to go against the accretions of the kind of religious institutions and customs and, super, and a lot of su superstition as well, which is a major part of it, that things that cluster around any spiritual teaching that they are intended to embody it, but they end up clogging it up. For a lot of us in the West, I think, who come to spirituality and whose parents or grandparents were religious, we view the rules as the reason that religion becomes moribund, that, that the spirit is choked out of religion. We view the rules and the sort of the moral strictures as the problem. You're an example to me of somebody who is living, you're living as a monk for 42 years. There are something like 10,000 rules supposedly in the Vinaya, is it called Vinaya, the monks, the monks rules? Yeah, 10,000 rules in the Vinaya. You're endeavoring to, I guess, follow them. And yet you have a curious, intelligent mind. You've got a shelf full of interesting books. We've t we talked before about how you've read Michael Holabek, among other things. So I wonder how, how do you see that tension? I know you've written a lot about this. How do you, how do you live within so many rules without them turning into a prison, without them becoming moribund, without um, spontaneity and, and joy turning into piety. Well, it was interesting you describing your own background and why Buddhism wasn't interesting to you as a 20-year-old, because it sounded exactly like my own story. And uh, I didn't really come across um, Buddhism uh, very directly until I wandered into a monastery in Northeast Thailand. I, I had been to a weekend of teachings in London when I was a student from a Tibetan tradition, but it, it really didn't stick at all. And it was only okay. when I was in uh, Thailand and uh, I really went to the monastery as a cheap place to stay, free place to stay, and I was, uh, as I was on a, an extremely tight budget. And then when I, I was given permission to stay for a few days and uh, I was look, being looked after by one of the novices and he sort of was trying to explain the basics of Buddhism to me and exactly uh, like you described, it seems like, well, all the things that I think are fun, uh, enjoyable and good, he's saying, no, you, you know, you can't do that. That's, that's all um, deceptive. And the Buddha said that life is suffering. And I remember saying something like, well, that's rubbish. And, just, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, 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 and inside that feeling, that was the polite way of putting it. And I thought, well, I'll just stay here for a couple of days and then I'll move on. So my, my thinking mind, you know, I was out of a sort of hippie anarchist ideology. I, I had a particular rejection of organized religion and, uh, and, and rules and structures. I went through the English private education system, as you can probably tell by my accent. <laughs> that was sort of my, my background of this sort of all boys schools with lots of, with uniforms and rules and houses, just like Hogwarts and such like. So that my mind had rebelled against that. I, I, re I rejected these kind of institutional forms, hierarchical and um, institutional religions. That was all out of the picture. And so I was a sort of free spirit by, by ideology, but I was also extremely miserable and uh, <laughs> very unhappy, very insecure, and um, couldn't really see why it was that I was so sort of insecure and anxious. And, and, and I was also drinking a huge amount. My 21st birthday present to myself was to stop drinking because it was, uh. it was really out of control, to be honest, by the time I was 20. 
So that was my present was to stop drinking and go to the East, make, a, make my journey to the East to do what I could to discover the spiritual dimension of my life. So one of the things that the, this novice um, uh, explained to me on that first, first afternoon when I arrived at uh, the International Forest Monastery, Wat Pa Nanachat in, in Ubon mm. province in Northeast Thailand, he was describing how desire worked and, and how that related to meditation. And this was something that I had been wrestling with, you know, particularly with sort of a kind of hippie anarchist ideology. How do you work with desire in a world of limitation? How can you be right. happy and free? How can you be free to do whatever you want to do when there's a world of limitation? You're limited mm -hmm. by the amount of money you've, you, you've got or haven't got, limited by the, the laws of nature, limited by the, the, the laws of the government and the expectations of the family, so on and so forth. So that had been, I'd been wrestling with that since I was about 12 or 13, trying to figure that out. How can we be free as a human being? And it always seemed to be like, well, you just defy as many rules as possible and as much as you can <laughs> afford, and then you just aim to be um, pushing the boundaries back and being contemptuous of laws and boundaries to the extent possible. But then right. having uh, tried that and having also spent time with anarchists and, and hippie communities, realizing these people are not free. I'm not free. Y yeah, we have a certain liberality in the lifestyle, but this doesn't lead to an end of being angry or being selfish or being deceitful or or possessive right. and so it was a puzzle to me there was a huge question mark for me so anyway I, I feel eternally grateful to that particular novice his name was uh anagarika peter he was a, a postulant uh, so a new trainee in the monastery peter hazel and uh what he said was that uh and just recounting the buddha's teaching he said you know, what well the essence of these the four noble truths is which which is where you also get the phrase of the Buddha saying life is inherently imbued with, with unsatisfaction, with suffering. He said, that's because we believe in the message of our desires. And he, hadn't, he was Australian, so he had an Australian accent. So he said, desire is a liar. <laughs> Forgive my bad Australian accent. Yeah, desire is a liar. Because when you desire something, what you feel is, I've got to have such and such. And if I can't have it, I'm not happy, I'm not complete, I'm not free. And right. so it's represented as being a lack. And if you get the thing that fills that gap, that fulfills that sense of absence and gets rid of it, then you are, um, say, complete or whole. You're, you have that satisfaction, at least for a time. So the point he made was, was that desire, it, it's, it's, a, it's like an advertisement, it's a promise, it's telling you something, if you get this, you will be happy. But he, what, it, what he pointed out is that in terms of the teaching, that, that that kind of happiness can only be superficial. And that sure. the more you buy into it, the more you, you invest in that sense of, of hope, the more there will be disappointment. And I thought, as he said that, I thought, well, that's rubbish, because you still haven't got the thing that you're lacking. So how does that help you? What value does that have? That's a stupid kind of spiritual teaching. And, and as I heard it there, I sort of rejected it. Anyway, the, the evening meditation came around. And uh, I, uh, you probably know in Buddhist monasteries, they don't eat in the evenings. So, right. uh, and I didn't realize that when I walked into the place. But, <laughs> so there's no supper. So there I was in the evening meditation and I felt hungry. And then I'd been living on the beach in Phuket um, as a sort of beach bum before I went up to the northeast of Thailand, inland, and uh, Phuket has a lot of pineapples, uh, and it was very cheap. So I lived on a lot of, lot of pineapple when I was uh, on the beach there. And so I had this thought, oh, I really fancy a piece of pineapple. And then 
having heard what he said about the meditation and, and desire, I thought, okay, let's just test this out. So he said, this is a desire. So, okay, now I'll watch the desire. I want some pineapple. I haven't got any pineapple. So, well, how does that help? That's ridiculous. This is not any kind of benefit at all. <laughs> how, do, how is this supposed to help me? Even at that point, I kind of rejected the teaching and the idea of, sort of this Buddhism is really foolish. But then about five or 10 minutes later, I noticed, oh, I'm not hungry anymore. And in that moment, it suddenly dawned on me, I didn't get the pineapple and nothing is missing. And that was a real, that was a huge turning point for me because it was like the sort of light bulb <laughs> came on and the, and the bells rang. It's like, you didn't get the pineapple and nothing is missing. Yeah. So that, that in that moment of, oh, I want some pineapple, it was, it was giving the message something is lacking, but that was just a, a passing feeling. Now, that obviously, that doesn't encompass every kind of wish and desire and capacity that we have in our life. But as a, a sort of tangible first principle, it was really like all the bells in the belfry going off. Like, oh, my goodness, that's what it's talking about. Aha! And it wasn't like a succession of thought, but it was in that moment, there was a sense of, this is what I've been wrestling with all, you know, ever since I was a young teenager, and this is how you find freedom, is mm. in understanding desire and learning not to be dominated by it. Aha! So I've been looking for freedom by defying convention, whereas what was revealed at that, at that moment and then through my time in the monastery was that it's not through defying convention, but understanding it. That when you're hungry, you know, the body is saying, can, can we get some food here? But right. The mind doesn't have to be dominated by that to know it. Oh, this is just a feeling. And if some food is available, great. If it's not available, you can wait. And so that was really a big turning point for me because it was a figuratively speaking. It's like that's the way forward. If you can just understand this, then that shows you how freedom is really possible in the human condition, despite the 10,000, say, limitations that we have. And then to maybe just finish with the original question was about the 10,000 rules of the Vinaya discipline, was that then it, it dawned on me, well, the rules of the Vinaya are trying to do is to create a really simple lifestyle that's honorable, right. that's harmless, that's honest, that's frugal, that then creates a really simple living situation wherein that process of desiring and awakening and, and letting go can be understood so that the... Uh, the freedom is found within the convention rather than by defying the conventions. And that when I met uh, Ajahn Chah a few days later, who was the, the founder of the monastery and the, the teacher, that was so evident in him. He was the happiest man in the world. He was totally free, but he was like famously like the strictest monk in the whole province. You know, he was known as being sort of extraordinarily austere and was... Uh, ran his monastery, Wat Bapong, with a extremely, as an extremely tight ship, but yet he was completely free in himself. He obeyed all the rules, but nothing limited him. And I remember meeting him, and even though I couldn't understand the language, meeting him and seeing how he operated and related to people and the way uh, he interacted, there was this mm. extraordinary way where, like, how does he do that? Because he's, he's totally at ease. He's absolutely 100% comfortable in his own skin. He's totally at ease. And, and the most sort of free and happy being I've ever met. But he has all these rules. 
And my <laughs> kind of hippie anarchist, like saying, no, 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 I disagree with rules. <laughs> but it was like saying that what he's doing is, is that the, the, the rules and the form are there to make life simple. And then within right. that, then that simplicity enables the, the innate freedom of the heart to be fully actualized, to be fully realized. So that was what I picked up, and that's what I've been doing this for the last 40-plus years. So the pineapple is a great teacher. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so where I struggle with this, and I think maybe this is the struggle of lay practice, period, you know, I can understand renouncing a pineapple. I can understand having the visceral experience of letting go of the desire, you know, the craving for ice cream, even sex at some time or other. But when I think about my life in the world, right, and I have a, I have a 12-year-old son, you know, so I'm out in the world and I'm trying to, uh, I teach and I make uh, creative products and I write and I, you know, I'm doing all these things within this container of Western capitalism where I have to, uh, where success at these things would mean both my own personal satisfaction, which is my primary driving force always. That's what brings me to anything that I've ever done, but also would mean that I'm able to sustain my living financially and, and help with sustaining that of my family, because otherwise I can't continue <laughs> to do these things within this world. And, and your son would and, get very hungry. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so there is a trajectory, there is an ambition, there is a desire for a kind of career growth, which should be an organic extension of the kind of thing that I feel like I'm doing for the right reasons anyway, not for self-aggrandizement or ego or because I think I'm so cool or whatever. But it's a, it's a momentum forward and it's, and it's a struggle because if it doesn't go as quickly as I want it to, you know, so I guess what I'm asking is like, does that just mean it's not possible to live in the world outside of the monastery without that tension? Is that, you know, is that the point, you know, of the monastery? The question you ask is an extremely common one, but it's based on a, a misreading of the teachings and the practice. Okay. Not, not to be criticizing you personally. It's kind of around the way we use the word desire in English, mm, okay. and that what you have in Pali, in the scriptural language, is there's really two kinds of desire. And the desire which is the troublemaker is tanha, or trishna in Sanskrit, tanha in Pali. That's the, so that's really like craving, and, so that's a, and that's always got a self-centered element in it. There's a, a strong I, me, mine that's kind right. of a dominant feature. And not just I want to get. It can be like I don't want to feel. I've got to get rid of. I, I, I'm out of here. I've got to get rid of this. I can't stand this. So it's not just getting. It's also getting rid of. And Or I, you know, I, I am. You know, I'm the one. You know, I am this, that kind of conceiving. Right. So that, that the other kind of desire is called chanda. And uh, the Buddha, as I'm sure you're, you're, if you're acquainted with the teachings, he's a great, at least in the southern Buddhist world, he's a great list maker. Many, many lists of qualities. Mm -hmm. And so one of the lists that we have uh, that is, uh, forms a central feature in the, the teachings and the practice is called the four bases of success, the idipada. Right. 
And so that is like, in order to succeed at anything, you have to have those four qualities. So the Buddha talks about those four qualities were necessary for him to, re to realize enlightenment. So right. to think that every kind of desire, any kind of directionality is somehow antithetical to spiritual life is a misunderstanding. I understand the desire for liberation, the desire for nirvana, that as the necessary um, fiction, as it were, that can get the Buddha onto the trajectory to where he arrives at, at enlightenment. That, that that form of attachment, to, what, to the extent that it is attachment, the desire for liberation, you know, is legitimate within the Buddha's understanding. But how does that then relate to other things like wanting your child to thrive in the world? You know, the, well, that's like, the, is, is there a chun, chun, what's the word? Chun? Chanda. Yeah, well, that's exactly what chanda. I was going to go on to say. You need those four bases of success, whether you're going to rob a bank, feed your child, uh, run a podcast um, or re realize full and complete enlightenment. It's the same four qualities. And mm. so whether it's morally uh, neutral or whether it's unskillful or it's skillful, those same four qualities are there. So chanda is represent, it means desire, interest, zeal, enthusiasm. Mm. So it's that spark that says, I'm interested. It's that engaging faculty of the mind. So that that is, say, what you're describing in terms of having a livelihood, feeding your family, uh, in, right. you know, deciding who, which guests to invite onto your clever creature podcast and you know, <laughs> what questions to ask and so on. You need to be interested. There needs to be that desire. And so and there's, a, there's teachings both in, in modern times, like Ajahn Chah would talk about this a lot, and, and you find it back in the scriptures when people would be puzzled. How can desire lead to the end of desire? And then they would spell it out. Well, it's this kind of desire, Chanda, doesn't have to have any kind of negative consequences to it. And so mm. when you see that something is worthwhile, like having a livelihood that supports your own family, that brings beneficial things into the world, that helps people to understand their own lives and enables them to do their own work in the world in a more effective and, uh, and peaceful and enjoyable way, well, great. It's not mm. going to lead to total enlightenment, but it's certainly something beneficial and skillful in the world. So if you're right. interested, there's those four qualities. Uh, the first one is chanda. So that's interest or enthusiasm, zeal. You've got to engage. I, I want to create a podcast, Clever mm. Creature podcast. So then <laughs> the second one is virya. If you're just sitting there in your, on your sofa, I've got this great idea for a podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, what's on Netflix? You know, and you, you, you don't follow it up, then it doesn't happen. So virya, energy, is the second one. Mm. So you have to actually you know, get up and, and do something. You have to apply right. energy and, and effort to that. The third one is chitta, which in this in instance means thinking about it. Okay, how am I going to do that? Thinking about what it is that you want to do. How are you going to do it? Who do you need to talk to? What kind of equipment do you need? Who's done this before? How can, uh, how can I use this to make something uh, unique or beneficial or, or really valuable? So it's, you've got to be interested, you've got to apply energy, and you've got to think it through. So those three work together. Right. And that's for and whether you want to rob a bank, whether you want mm -hmm. to run a podcast, whether you want to decide what you're going to cook for supper, or whether you want to go on a meditation retreat and, and train your mind. You know, it's a, it's, those, those are, are all essential. The fourth one is in a bit of a different category, and that is called vimangsa. And that literally means reviewing 
or e examining. Mm. So it's like, okay, mm. how did it work out? I had the idea to do a podcast. I, I got the, the kit together. Uh, I did some interviews. Is it actually working? You know, have I managed to get it sort of loaded up and are, are people able to tune into it? Is it, is it working? What's the feedback? So that's the feedback system. Uh, okay. okay, I had this idea. I wanted to rob the bank. Did I succeed? I wanted to cook right. supper. How did the supper turn out? Yeah, uh, am I, uh, is my kid smiling? And say, wow, dad, that was great. Or is it like, do I have to eat all of this? Um, and then you learn from that feedback. So that's the essential element. So uh, in terms of, I would say, Buddhist practice, a huge amount revolves around exactly that process of what to put your mind on, how to how to engage in things, thinking through right. what you want to do, using that reflective uh, pattern recognizing faculty of the mind. How does this work in the past? What have other people learned from, learned how to do this? What have they learned from? Uh, can I learn from that too? All of that is really essential. And so I would say that that kind of desire and and wise reflection, investigation and engagement, you know, being proactive. Right. Right? getting up and doing, that's all very much a part of Buddhist practice. So that when we say desire is the cause of suffering, <laughs> it's the, the tanha that is the, the troublemaker. Because the more that that quality of, of interest and enthusiasm and engagement, the more that can be driven free of egotism, free of what, what we would call self-view, Right. Then it's really coming from an attuned, mindful engagement with this living situation, with uh, who you're with, what the world needs, what's going on around you. The more that what we would say mindfulness and wisdom guides action rather than my, my ambition or, or my ego, then the more enjoyable it is and also the more effective. The more it's about moi and me wanting to score points or be famous or uh, compete uh, and get more likes than the other person, or not just in terms of an inflated ego, but I should, I must, I've got to, then even if it's something with a really noble intention and very uh, helpful, providing services for other people, charitable causes, and I, you know, I spend a lot of time counseling people who are in the service industries, living in California. I lived on the West Coast for a long time. And for many, many people in the States, as well as here in Britain, the amount of suffering that people experience doing good works, <laughs> what they call compassion fatigue, is a huge issue because mm. so easily uh, that sense of self takes over our good intentions and our noble work and our, our wish to help others so that it becomes, I should, I must, I'm not doing enough, I should try harder, how can I do this better? And so it's not just ego inflation, but the, even the sense of, uh, I've got to do this, this is my responsibility, if other people are suffering, it's my fault. The right. degree to which it's, it's personalized and the ego-based uh, thinking sort of takes over the reins, then the less enjoyable and the less liberating it is. The more the mind can work from a base free of self-view, free of that kind of con conceit, whether it's inflated ego or whether it's a sense of personal obligation and such like, then the more that the work is really enjoyable. It's like going for a really good hike. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's work. Climbing that mountain, yeah, it's an effort, but right. oh, you, know, you feel good about it because you're not trying to achieve if you're not trying to conquer the mountain, that is. I think for me, that was a, a very big problem when I was a young, much younger man trying to think of myself as an artist in love with art, in love with literature, 
and then trying 18 years old, trying to imagine myself first as an actor, then as a writer. All of these visions that are about struggling against insecurity, about boosting the ego, about becoming something extraordinary so as to show somebody how extraordinary one is. And some of that has just sort of burned off in the crucible of time, you know? I'm in a very different place with that now, closer to what you're describing. I had those same kind of ambitions at that age. You know, the idea of being a great writer or an actor. But uh, I had an interesting insight when I was about 19 or 20. And I was really trying to put myself into this mode of, okay, I really admire these great writers, James Joyce and Rambo and these kind of inspired poets, T.S. Eliot and, and uh, Dylan Thomas and so forth. So I really pitched myself into that for a while. I had this this really kind of shocking and slightly sort of gut-wrenching insight, which was when I really sat down and said, okay, so I'm going to do something now. I'm really going to write something. <laughs> and then it, what hit me was, I haven't got anything to say. Mm. What have I got to say? And it was just like, oh my goodness, maybe I need to grow up a bit and find something to say first and then think about being a writer. So I like the idea of being a writer, but I didn't actually have anything to say. And it's rather like... Um, there was a um, famous British politician who was uh, asked whether he was disappointed he never became prime minister. And he said, well, anybody in British politics has the ambition to one day rise to the, to the highest office. But then I realized I didn't want to be prime minister. I wanted to have been prime minister. <laughs> and I thought that, yeah. was, that was extraordinarily insightful. I wonder sometimes whether those impulses, the young impulse to be an artist that then maybe through experience blossoms into the adult impulse to produce things for the benefit of the world, you know, that they're interconnected. I don't, th I don't think they're separate things, but I do think that it, it just gets wrapped up with confusion around self-definition. I mean, you come mm -hmm. to art because art moves you. You know, you're, mm -hmm. you're 16 and you read a poem and your heart opens up and you want to be able to do that in the world. Exactly. Like it, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. One of the themes, one of the things that we're talking about in um, this season of Clever Creature, last season I got the, the special word of the episode from a computer algorithm that randomizes words. This season I've asked listeners to give me words that are about the natural world. And I've invited a number of guests whose work in some way intersects with the natural world. And the natural world is something that I want to be thinking and talking about at this time. I don't know, maybe because COVID has shut us all indoors. I think a lot of people are finding themselves longing for outdoor spaces. And of course, you know, we're deep into the Anthropocene and, and we see what's happening to the planet. So let me ask you, within the forest tradition, which literally has forest in its name, in what ways does the natural world become a teacher? I know this is something you've written about. I've read some of your writing on this. How is nature a teacher within this tradition? Uh, in, in many, many dimensions. Uh, and not just nature as in sky and clouds and trees and grass, but nature as in this breathing body that needs to, to eat and um, is born and will die. And so particularly with the, the um, COVID-19 pandemic and the, the massive amount of impact that's had on our lives and so many tens of thousands of people have, who've died and so that uh, nature as a, a teacher is is massively significant because 
one of the main ways that we cause distress for ourselves and, and conflict in the world is that we tend to live very much from a, a self-centered perspective. We feel like I have the expectation to live for 70 or 80 years, or I, I should be able to have a healthy body, and that I should have a certain degree of, of physical comfort and so forth. And so over and over again, those sets of expectations, that, that causes disappointment or shock when we experience illness or, or we, we don't, say, learn from the natural order around ourselves that how can it be that I'm getting old, you know, my hair is falling out or my face is getting more and more <laughs> wrinkly or my, my posture is slouching more and more or my joints are aching. You know, I don't want this to happen. You know, how can this be? And, you know, the signals are all around us. And so the messages are there in the natural world. It's the autumn here, the fall. So the leaves are falling off the deciduous trees. That's what happens. It's the season. The leaves turn brown, they turn gold, they turn red, they fall. That's their cycle. But yet when it's our leaf that's turning brown and wrinkling and falling <laughs> off, and that the hair is falling out and the hands are, are all blotchy and wrinkly, then, oh, how could this be happening? Not me. And so... <laughs> I'm not sort of uh, having a diatribe against trying to stay young and, and healthy and so maximizing our vitality, but looking at the way that we assume this level of control over our life and that we feel like we're in charge. And so we, particularly as adults, sort of between the age of 21 and, and 81 maybe, that there's this sort of zone of, con of maximum apparent control. And we focus on that and think this is real life where I can do what I right. like, I can go where I want, and I'm in charge. And that one of the things the pandemic has shown is that, you know, you can't travel and you can't do this, you can't do that. And people are really offended by it. But in a, in a sense, and I've, I've given talks and written pieces about this, it's really like the 1% the of control that we had has gone down to 0.75%. 99% was never under our control in the first place. And it's yet another opportunity either to learn from that or freak out. And exactly. A lot of us are freaking out, of course. And feeling that <laughs> something is unfair, it shouldn't yeah. be this way, you blame the government, you blame your parents, uh, and you feel that something has been taken away from you. So the more mm. that we really reflect on nature and how birth and death work as part of a, the natural order, and that our own life, our own body, our own mind, our own moods are part of a natural system and follow the laws of nature. And we, we in a sense, shift from a, a self-centered perspective to a nature-centered perspective. Then we're able to enjoy our life a lot better and we're not feeling that kind of resentment or that feeling of wrongness or that it shouldn't be this way. Now, sometimes, right. of course, the government has made stupid decisions. But even if people in positions of authority have made poorly informed decisions, it's still up to me whether I make a problem out of that or not. And that's in terms of spiritual practice, which I, I would prefer to focus on here, is even if you have been badly treated or, or you have been harmed because of somebody else's incompetence or even their ill will, you know, someone has deliberately tried to harm you, it's still up to us as individuals whether we get buried in that or whether we work with that. You do what you can with the situation to alleviate the causes of the illness or the injury or the wrongdoing, but beyond a certain point, it's out of our control. That's another of these tightropes of practicing within the lay community is the question of whether and, and when that attention to acceptance 
might sap the necessary energy to take action that is necessary for the benefit of, say, my child, you know, political action uh, and other action. And that's a whole another can of worms. But yeah. I think about it and struggle with that all the all the time. Yeah, it's yeah. very significant. But I feel that, you know, going back to your original question, the more that we really study nature and realize that every aspect of our body and mind is part of the natural order, even that the glasses you're wearing and the headphones over your ears and the, the microphones that we're talking into, these are part of the natural world. They're the metal, right. the plastic, the glass, it's all elements that have come out of the earth and out of the sky, out of the waters, put together through the human ingenuity, our brains. These are all part of nature. So that if we look at our life, our mind, our bodies, our, our living system as part of the natural order, then it changes the framework. There's a different paradigm that right. we're working from. There's a different basis. And right. so that when we see things in a non-personal way, it mysteriously in, it enables us to work more effectively as a person. <laughs> you, are more, right. you are more able to sort of embody what's possible and do that, what's that, possible that. by not taking it personally. That's the crucial thing, yeah, that, that, that what, what you just said about the fact that we ourselves are part of that natural order is the answer to that question or that criticism or charge of fatalism, which no doubt some branches of Buddhism have fallen into. Yes, indeed. Sometime indeed. or other. But it need not be fatalistic if you see yourself as a part of the creative force of, of life. Indeed. And so I've spent a huge amount of time over the, the years as I've been teaching, trying to counteract that, because there's a, a fatalistic, deterministic thread within the Buddhist world that any kind of desire, any kind of doing is somehow antithetical to spiritual practice. And I say, no, 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 your capacity to act <laughs> is part of the way things are. So when people say, I'm just letting go, I'm just being with the way it is. Well, no, your capacity to get up <laughs> and do something is part of the way it is. You are not right. an abstracted observer you are it you know you are the universe and that's a very strong thread within certain buddhist schools buddhist meditation traditions and i feel it's a it's a very unfortunate mistake because it make it puts us into a kind of passive mode and we think if we're really yes. practicing well you kind of turn to stone you know you, you go completely numb right. which is absolutely not it if you look at the life of the buddha as an example he was extraordinarily imaginative and proactive Spent 45 years walking around the Ganges Valley, uh, you know, amazingly creative and imaginative as a teacher, brought all kinds of things into being that were unprecedented, amazing skill uh, and creativity as a teacher. So if he was abiding in a, a kind of abstracted, just, just sort of just watching with making quote marks in the air, <laughs> but, right. but your listeners can't see, he couldn't have done that. He would have just stayed under the Bodhi tree or gone off to a cave and been a rishi in the mountains. And he didn't. He was completely unattached, but extraordinarily active and proactive and engaged with the world. And we are the recipients of his proactivity two and a half thousand years later. When he was teaching, it was the Iron Age here in Britain. That was 450 <laughs> years before the Romans arrived. It was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. So that his teaching, having lasted that long, that, that's a sign of extraordinary degree of effective, creative thought and activity and setting things in place 
that can still have beneficial effects on the planet 25 centuries later. And particularly in our times, one of the things I feel that Buddhism can bring to the world is how to use the energy and capacities of your life, your, your intelligence, your good-heartedness, your vitality, to do good things in the community around you, to, to bring skillful stuff into, into being uh, for the benefit of, of your own locality and for the benefit of the world. We can do that. Our ability to act right. is part of the way things are. So we're not disturbing the universe, like, like T.S. Eliot saying, do I dare disturb the universe? <laughs> you know, in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, do I dare right. disturb the universe? We're not disturbing the universe. We are the universe. <laughs> this perspective is, has been incredibly, incredibly helpful for me, and I'm so glad you articulated it in that way. As I mentioned, each episode is guided as it were, there's a piece of short fiction and a song and a conversation. There's a single word that is kind of the unifying factor of the episode. So this word comes to us from a friend of mine, Weyusi Baraka. And I asked everyone to come up with a word that has something to do with the natural world, which of course is everything. <laughs> um, and the word is transition. Well, <laughs> how, how many weeks have we got? You know? <laughs> uh, well, everything is in a state of transition. If it's a thing, it's in a state of change. And so that if the mind focuses on its thingness and makes it into a solid, separate, independent entity, then necessarily right. it creates tension, stressing in the system. So that if I recognize that rather than looking at a, a computer screen, as a recognizing that elements have come together and, have, uh, and there, there is screening going on. It's not a screen as a, as a single thing that's there forever. It's a set of elements in transition. Hopefully they'll hold together for a while longer, but they are in a naturally and inexorably in a state of, of transition. That's the nature of all things, physical, mental, every dimension of the sense world is in a constant state of fluidity. When the mind is coming from a place of self-view and, and not seeing things clearly, it tends to hang on to the world of things. If it's a painful thing, it wants it to come to an end. If it's a pleasant thing, it wants to keep it. If it's, a, if it's a, an unimpactful thing, it'll just switch off. Right. and go to sleep in relationship to it. That's the, I would say, is the conditioned or habitual way that the mind relates to the world of things. And that's one of the reasons why uh, the, the more that we, we create uh, or don't have a feel for that tr intrinsic transitory quality, then we create that discordancy in the heart, that sense of, of imbalance and it shouldn't be this way. I want to keep this this beautiful thing. I can't. I, I can't get wait to get away from that painful thing. So that in uh, in our practice, in Buddhist practice, and and what my own teachers have emphasised, and what I've tried to embody over the years, is an active recognition of that transitory quality. Right. So if that my if the mind knows that quality of change of fluidity, then rather than that being 
uh, say, disappointing because the good is going away or burdensome because the painful is sticking around, there's a different framework, there's a different paradigm within which it is held. It can't be clung to, it can't be held. Like the, the famous fairy story of the, the magic ring that solves all problems, and it just has the words, this too will pass, engraved upon <laughs> it. And so that's, the, that's the, uh, an essential teaching, so that when the mind is really fully attuned to that transitory nature, then it changes the way that we relate to experience, and particularly to hope and fear rather than hoping something good is going to come and going to be here, or fear that something bad is going to come. Because when we meet that quality of change, we tend to fend off that quality of change and transitoriness. We fill that up with a sense of owning, or a plan, or a belief, or a worry even. We fend off that quality of change with our, our, those kind of attitudes. But if we shift to a more nature-centered perspective, seeing things free of those habits of uh, kind of ego-centered self-view, then the attitude towards the future and what things are going to change into changes radically. So rather than that uncertainty of what, it's going to, what this moment is going to turn into being threatening or promising, both of which create that stressing and tensing in, in the heart, instead that quality of uncertainty brings wonderment. There's a mystery. The uncertainty of life is uh, that which brings up, wow, I, I don't know what's going on. Huh. Well, I never really did. And so that, and I, that uncertainty is liberating rather than threatening. And I think it's crucial to emphasize, going back to what you were saying earlier about activity in the world, that the fact that everything is in transition within within this practice, within this perspective, does not mean that everything is a blur. It doesn't mean that everything is just, you know, one undifferentiated um, gray mass. It, 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 the, the, the wonderment that you're talking about can only come with curious, like friendly curiosity, interest, attention, that is able to kind of hold loosely onto the thing that's not hold loosely, I don't know, kind of view the thing that's in transition, maybe engage with it as needed, whatever, but not in the way, not in the way of grasping. But there has, there's awareness. Yes, there's yeah. and there's awareness of difference. Like you right. say, it's not just a gray blur. I mean, our common sense and, and the laws of every country in the world say this person is different from that. Jason is not the same <laughs> as Jason's son. They're different people. He's the dad, he's the son. There's not just a amorphous blur. I'm Ajahn Amra, I'm on this side of the, of the, of the screen, you're Jason, <laughs> you're on that side of the screen. So that the mind is aware and attentive to, to differences, but that's not something that is grasped or held. It's like enjoying a sunset. You know, it's right. just there, that, that moment of luminous, the incredible brightness of, of a sunset is just there for a moment before the luminosity fades. And, but it, you can't keep it. It's just there for a moment. And the mind, as Blake put it, you kiss the joy as it flies. Mm. Then that's the way you live mm. in eternity's sunrise. With this respect and reflecting on, on transition, the more that the heart really opens to that and, and attunes to that, then 
there's a real freedom. And so uh, one of the main teachings that our the founder of our, our community, Ajahn Chah, would give was exactly on this developing this appreciation of change, a transition, or in the Pali language called the Anicca Sanya, the perception of change. So one of the, the kind of meditation exercises he would encourage is to bring that to mind, yeah, you know, over and over again during the course of a day. And not just with external objects or, or things that we're doing, but our mind states as well, our opinions. So to bring up that questioning mm. and that uncertainty, you say, this is good. He would say, ask yourself, is that so? This is awful. Is that so? This mm. is mine. Is that so? That's yours. Is that so? And in that simple way of applying that kind of reflection, there's a, an immediate shift in the perception, in the heart of like, oh, something intuitive recognizes, oh, only relatively speaking is this true. Only relatively speaking is this good. I call this good, but there's the rest of the picture. And so in terms of reflecting on transition, transitoriness and such, to really make a difference in our life, it's not just a concept, but the more that we look at that, our opinion, like what was important to you 10 years ago or, or even 10 days ago, might be very different today. And so... Uh, if what's important to you now is very different from what was important to you 10 years ago, what does that say about what's important to you now? And how will that be in 10 years' time? So that then our, it gives us a perspective on our rightness, or what we call beautiful, or ours. It's a very, very simple, direct way of loosening that grip. And the effect of it is to, on an individual level, is to enjoy your life more. Even something painful, like, this is exactly what I didn't want to happen. This is a disaster. <laughs> is that so? Is that a sure thing? And then you recognize, actually, most of the really good things in my life have come out of the disasters. Right. <laughs> you know? And that, uh, so that it's an extraordinarily valuable and applicable spiritual tool. And an even simpler version is just to think the word, so, this is great. <laughs> this is great. So, this is awful, so. And, and seriously, if, if that's applied, it's not being nihilistic or kind of having a downer on everything. I mean, it can sound like a sort of sour, uh, like a sort of cynical, both the British yeah. sort of cynicism and, and New Yorkers cynicisms are famous around the world, the kind of, so, big deal, you know, so what? Uh, but if that's applied with a good heart, so then there's more spaciousness in our, mm. our world. We, we, we hold the events of our life and the, the people around us and the, the world around us in a different way. Ajahn Amaro, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful and very illuminating. Glad to be of service, and I hope that the recording um, system serves its purpose well. That beautiful theme song is by Emre Gotts, my son. Special thanks to Weyusi Baraka for the word of the episode, Transition, and to Adi Sadak for the instrumentals of the song of the episode. I'll be back in two weeks with Bia Labachi. She is an anthropologist and the head of the Chakruna Institute for Psychedelic Plant Medicine. You can learn more about me on my website, jasongotts.com, and I'd be grateful if you could rate or review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. 